0: Us. Many of you know him already. He'll tell you more about what he does and how, how the Lord is using him. But welcome, Bill. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, it's been a long time. It's been three years. We, we were planning to come back from where we live in the Middle East uh, last year. After two years, our, our plan was to come back every two years, but the pandemic shut that down last year, so it's been three years since I've seen all of you and uh, so many of you um, I knew when I lived here and familiar faces, older faces but <laughs> but familiar so uh, it's it's good to be with you um, just for those of you who don't know me, uh, uh, I lived here for gosh, I can't remember. I guess 15 years or something like that. Got married here, had three kids here, and um, pastored a church here. So, um, so Pastor Alex and I can sit around and relate to each other. Uh, pastored a church here for I think it was eight years or something. Uh, I consider those the good old days, and um, and so uh, we moved. I moved the family over to Israel. Uh, a little over 14 years ago, and we lived in uh, Jerusalem for 10 years, and then they kicked us out because we didn't have the right visa, and so then we moved across the Jordan River to Amman, Jordan, and we've been there over four years now. Um, I studied biblical archaeology in uh, Israel, and so I'm an archaeologist now, and that's one of the main things I do, though I'm in ministry, but I'm still a preacher too, so I'm kind of this weird you know combo of part preacher and part archaeologist so i like to preach off of archaeology that's what i kind of do so i want to share with you some archaeology today about the house of david and and when i say the house of david i mean the dynasty the family of david and i want to warn you we've got the lights shut out here to make this uh, as bright but if any of you from the back want to move forward please feel free to do so whenever uh, you want to, but we're going to be looking at some visuals, and we got this light coming in from these windows, and so it's kind of dimmed it down, and it might be kind of hard to see from back there. Anytime you want to move forward, feel free to do so. So the house of David, the archaeological evidence for the house of David is overwhelming. Um I couldn't possibly share it with you. I would need a week to go through all of it. So um, today I'm just going to pick five key examples. And we're just going to go through those one at a time. And we're going to go through in chronological order with the oldest ones first. And then we'll just move through to the later ones. And, um, and we'll talk about how uh, this, what this has to do with us as well at the end. Okay, so we'll start with uh, with the first one. And the first one is... The, uh, let me see here. It's not working. There. Now it's going to work. No, it's not. (laughs) Okay. Can you move it yourself? Well, I can move it, but it is having a problem. Of course. Maybe, uh, yeah, reopen it. Maybe close it all the way down and then reopen it. Do you see it on the, excuse me one sec. You see it on the screen, on the um, desktop? here 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 it was working so yeah. let's just close it out and then let's go that out it's just okay. and yeah. then let's go and open it again because maybe it timed out yeah, yeah. i did something yeah. and then we'll close that yeah. out yeah. we'll try that let's see if your thing will work yeah, see, what now I it's think not up there yeah what i'm thinking Has something to do with when you went back over to the other music, mm-hmm. and then when you came back, it was not. Hey seems. See, I can close this out. Yeah. So this works now. This works on this. Oh. There we go. Sorry, oh. Yeah. Okay. Sorry about that. Okay. So five examples of uh, archaeology of the house of David. Um, This is this is a shot of what the city of David looks like in uh, Jerusalem today. We took this with a drone, my son and I. I could tell you all kinds of stories about shooting with drones in Jerusalem, but we don't have time. So moving on, that's what it looks like today. Now uh, it's kind of defined the city of David. This is this is it in a um, oh good grief. Um, The change back there. Well, it's not working. Gosh, if we go without the visuals, I don't even know. <laughs> I would be really at a loss. <laughs> so it's probably best if we just take the time to figure it out. Sorry about this. OK. So I'll go back to it. So this is the city of David. This is, this is what it looked like in ancient times. Um, and, uh, and so this is a reconstruction that my son made on the actual topography of Jerusalem. That hill that you see in the background there with the stone on top of it, that's Mount Moriah. That's where the Temple Mount is today in Jerusalem. If I go back, oh good grief. <laughs> if, I, if you uh, go back to the, there, that one, um, then that is the Temple Mount that you see there in the background with the Dome of the Rock on it and then this is a reconstruction of what that looks like. In 2005, an Israeli archaeologist named Elat Mazar discovered a monumental building at the high place at the top of the city of David, and she's a very good uh, biblical archaeologist. She used the Bible, in uh, this case 2 Samuel chapter 5 verse 11, uh, which says that David built a palace for himself up on top of uh, the city of David, and then she found uh, the ruins, uh, the foundations, walls of this monumental building that the pottery dated to the time of David. And so she, rightfully so, used the Bible to interpret what she'd found in the ground, that this was the palace of David. Okay, so this is uh, very significant because we're going to be reading 2 Samuel chapter 7 here. And it tells us, verse 1, after the king was settled in his palace... Okay, so what we're about to read happened within these walls of this building, the palace of David. Okay, and so something very, very significant happened inside these walls. Let's read about it. It says, uh, The Lord declares to you, that is to David, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. Your own flesh and blood will establish his kingdom. Now listen to this. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Okay, now um, it's not talking about the dwelling place that, that David lives in that's made out of stone and wood. It's talking about the family of David, the lineage of David, made of flesh and bones, that come from his own body, his descendants. Okay, Uh, The the line of the sons of David who will serve as kings will never end. That's impossible. It's impossible. Men come and go. Empires come and go. Nations come and go. And so do the families that rule over them. They come and go just like that in history over and over again. So to give you just uh, an example is... The, southern, uh, king, the, the kingdom of Israel divides in two. We have the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel, which lasts just over 100 years, and in that time period, it changes dynasties seven times. Seven different royal houses rule over the northern kingdom of Israel. That's typical. That's common. Let One is an example. Okay, First Kings 16, this is the house of Basha. So uh, the Lord says this about the house of Basha. So I'm about to wipe out Basha and his house. Okay, so um, that's the opposite of what he's telling David over here, right? So how does a house, how does a royal house get wiped out? Zimri came in, struck him down, and killed him. Then he succeeded him as king. As soon as he began to reign and was seated on the throne, he killed off Basha's whole family. He did not spare a single male, whether relative or friend, the house of Basha, gone, right? And, uh, and so this is typical. This happened seven times just in a little over 100 years. That's why it's so remarkable that God says to David, this is not going to happen to you. Your house is going to last forever. It will never end. And David was completely blown away fell on his face and prayed and just was like, how is this possible? Um, And so we should look at how is this going to be possible? Israel clung to this, right? They clung to this promise. And uh, we read about it here in Psalm 89. I have sworn to David my covenant with him will never fail. This promise will never fail. Uh, I will establish his line forever, his throne as long as the heavens endure once and for all, I have sworn by my holiness. When God promises something, when he covenants something by his holiness, it will not fail. And I will not lie to David. He cannot lie, right? Much less lie to David. So Israel held on to this promise that the house of David would last forever. And it raises a very interesting archaeological uh, question, you know, physical evidence that's behind from these things, what does the archaeological evidence say? Does the house of David, unlike all these other royal dynasties from these other nations, does it last forever, or does it come to an end? Well, the reason that it lasts forever, and the way that this is going to uh, be, this promise is going to be fulfilled, is the promise that the is going to come from the house of David. For example, Isaiah 16, 5. In love, a throne will be established, in faithfulness a man will sit on it. One from the house of David. Therefore, the house of David has to last, right, from the time of King David at least until the time of the Messiah. In order for the Messiah to come from it, no way is uh, it going to fail God's promise that The Messiah is going to come from the family of David. One of the titles of the Messiah is Son of David. Okay, so uh, does it last archaeologically? Our second example is a well-known inscription. This is known as the Tel Dan inscription. It was found in the northern part of Israel in 1993. It is uh, from the 9th century B.C., and you see it's kind of highlighted there in chalk. This is in the Israel Museum. And this is an Aramean king who is bragging about a little over a hundred years after the time of uh, King David. He's bragging about defeating the house of David. And that white that you see there says, Beit Dawid, house of David. Okay, so uh, in comparison again, remember the northern kingdom of Israel in just over a hundred years changes dynasties, houses, seven times. And in a little over 100 years after King David, the same dynasty, the house of David, is still ruling. And we have, apart from the Bible, hard evidence for this. Okay, so this is uh, the Tel Dan inscription, 9th century B.C. Um, Then our third example, so our first example archaeologically, the palace of David. The second one, Tel Dan Steely. The third one is the Palace of Sennacherib, king of Assyria. This is in what is today Iraq. And, um, and so uh, it was first dug, the Palace of Sennacherib, by a British explorer and archaeologist named Austin Henry Layard. He began digging this palace in uh, 1847 and I mean these were these these were the great times in archaeology 1847 he dug into this huge building and all along he'd find in five minutes what you would find in a whole career not even as much <laughs> probably I mean he, he would dig in this building and along the walls there were panels of stone uh, carvings that showed the accomplishments of uh, of of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. And then all these inscriptions, some on the walls and some on like a prism uh, that he found. And he'd take all this stuff and ship it back to London where it's on display now in the British Museum. This is one example of one of the wall panels. You see a a man sitting on a throne up there in the right-hand corner. That's Sennacherib, uh, a picture of him. We have a stone picture from his palace of him. And so now from this time on, we have something very unique. We have the biblical record, and now we have the Assyrian record, and now we can look at all the ways that these two records correlate, okay? So um, to give you an example, come on, there we go, uh, to give you an example, 2 Chronicles 32.9, it says, when Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and all of his forces were laying siege to Lachish, so it names Sennacherib Assyria, there he is in the Bible, and there he is on uh, the wall of his palace. Where are they laying uh, siege to? Uh, they're laying siege to Lachish, and there on the wall of his palace is the siege of Lachish. And it says in an inscription, this is the siege of Lachish. <laughs> and so we, uh, we have uh, this amazing correlation between the Bible and... And, uh, and, and the Assyrian records. So the Bible talks about this uh, 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 Assyrian conquest of Judah. It talks about Sennacherib coming in and destroying all the cities of Judah down to Jerusalem. And here we get to hear from Sennacherib himself from an uh, uh, inscription on a prism. It says, As to Hezekiah the Jew. That's amazing. In the Bible, the Bible's talking about Sennacherib. It's talking about Hezekiah being the king of Jerusalem. And then when we get the records from Sennacherib, he's talking about attacking Hezekiah the Jew, naming him. As to Hezekiah the Jew, he did not submit to my book. He's really, really mad. Sennacherib's really mad at uh, Hezekiah because not only did uh, uh, Hezekiah rebel against Sennacherib, he also led a coalition of a whole bunch of other kings to rebel against Sennacherib. So Sennacherib wants to get him more than anybody And it says, I laid siege to 46 of his strong cities and conquered them. The Assyrians were undefeated at this point. Every single city they'd laid siege to, they took. Himself, I made a prisoner, himself being Hezekiah, I made a prisoner in Jerusalem, his royal residence, like a bird in a cage. I surrounded him with earthwork. So in this siege of Jerusalem, who is Sennacherib specifically saying he has laid siege to? like a bird in a cage. Hezekiah and his sons are in that city, and the house of David that God promised would last forever is under threat now with this undefeated most powerful army on earth that never has not taken a city that they've laid siege to. And so if Sennacherib catches Hezekiah, what's he going to do to him? What's he going to do to him and his sons? And we know this from the siege of uh, Of Lachish, we have a picture of it. If you look down at the bottom, I don't know if you can see it, but there's these uh, three, um, I'll, I'll show you the blow up of it. Yeah, it's right there. So that's the blow up of it. We have two Assyrian soldiers who have stripped down naked three Judean men and they've placed them on these poles. And so what is uh, what, what is this going on here? That you can see it in the overall panel here down at the bottom there in the middle. That's being circled with the mouse. Very good. Um, and so what are they doing? What is this common Assyrian practice? Well, we can go to the inscriptions of Sennacherib, and we can read from his own words what he's doing. Okay, so here is... Uh, Next one, I assaulted Ekron. This is Sennacherib himself talking about another city Ekron and killed the officials and patricians who had committed the crime and hung their bodies on poles surrounding the city. So when we look at those men on Lachish, who are they? They're the leaders of the city. That makes sense, right? They're the ones who committed the crime. What's the crime? They rebelled against Sennacherib. And now Sennacherib has captured the city. Who is he going to punish the most? He's going to punish the leaders that rebelled against him, and he's going to make an example of them so that other uh, leaders of other cities go, okay, we surrender. So what does he do? He takes them, he puts them on these poles, he decorates the outside of the city wall with these leaders of the city. He humiliates them. In fact, we find this detail too. His foremost officials, I impaled alive on stakes and caused his country to behold it. So at least initially, these men that we see pictured in uh, Lachish were put on these stakes impaled alive in great agony in great humility decorating the outside of the city of uh, whatever city he conquered. Okay, now we go back to the Lachish uh, picture just to visualize it. This, no doubt... Is what Sennacherib wanted to do to the house of David. Right? He wanted to breach the wall of Jerusalem, capture the bird, <laughs> capture Hezekiah and his sons, strip them naked, impale them alive in great agony to decorate the outside of the city of Jerusalem so that the country would behold it, so that other countries would behold it, other kings would get the message don't mess with the most powerful king on earth or you're going to end up like this, right? Powerful message, by the way. A lot of cities put up their white flags and said, okay, okay, okay. We don't want to end up like that. Um, okay, so we have all this information from uh, from the Syrian records and stuff. Let's look at, um, oh, let me ask you this. Is is Sennacherib going to get the house of David? <laughs> nope. There's no way he's going to get the house of David. Why? Because he swore by his holiness that the house of David would last forever. I don't know what's going to happen at this point, right? If you don't know history, but you know what's not going to happen. <laughs> he's not going to get them. And so the Bible says this. God says this. I defend this city and save Why? For my sake, because he swore by his holiness, and for the sake of David, my servant, because I will not lie to David. That night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. Now let's hear from Sennacherib himself. Sennacherib says, Hezekiah did send me later to Nineveh. See, now Sennacherib is having this written in his palace back in Nineveh. Later, later than what? Later than the siege of Jerusalem, my lordly city together with 30 talents of gold. It goes into this big description of the gift that Hezekiah sent him later after the siege to him in Nineveh. What does that mean? It means he didn't get the house of David. Even both the biblical records and the Assyrian records agree that the Assyrians did not capture Jerusalem. Now, I don't know how to explain it to you, but that's so amazing archaeologically because we have every city from north of the Euphrates and Tigris River to south and everywhere in between to south of the Nile River in Egypt, every single city the Assyrians ever laid siege to, they took except for one, the city of Jerusalem. This is the same inscription, by the way, by Sennacherib, the same inscription that he brags, I shut up Hezekiah like a bird in a cage. He also admits later, I never did get my hand into that cage and capture the bird. Uh, What does this mean? The house of David lives on. The promise that the Messiah will come from the house of David is alive and well after this time. Now, about a little over a hundred years later, Jerusalem is laid siege to again, this time by the Babylonians and uh, Nebuchadnezzar. This time, God does not spare the city. They breach the wall of Jerusalem. They burn the city. They burn down the temple in Jerusalem. And uh, we get this uh, description. It says, and he's from the house of David. He's the last king to rule over Jerusalem, it says, uh, was captured. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar did get the bird. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah, where sentence was pronounced on him. They killed the sons of Zedekiah for his eyes. Then they put out his eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. Uh-oh. <laughs> that doesn't sound good. Uh, could that be the end of the house of David? You ever seen one of those fakes in football, you know, where the cameraman follows the fake instead of where the ball is? This happens in scripture, it's, you know, there's a fake, and, and the cameraman, we, we often follow the, the fake that doesn't have the promise, and we, we don't see that somebody else has the promise here. And so we have archaeology that speaks to how the house of David survived the Babylonian conquest and exile, even though at this point when we're reading this, it doesn't look like it did. So I want to take you to uh, here. Um, I took this picture about five or six weeks ago. Um, What you're seeing in the foreground is the palace of Nebuchadnezzar. So I'm in southern Iraq. Um, I've been living in Jordan for a little over four years, and the whole time I've been trying to get a uh, contact there that can get me a visa so that I can go into Iraq. It's very difficult to do, especially as an American, Um, but finally I made a contact that was able to get me a special visa so I went into Iraq. I couldn't stay down in Babylon because of the situation there. I had to stay in, uh, in Baghdad, and then I'd drive down. It's about an hour drive uh, down south. So I went five days and spent five days in the ruins of Babylon, which are huge. I mean, this city is the biggest fortified city in the world. It's miles and miles long. It's miles and miles wide. It's incredibly overwhelming <laughs> for an archaeologist. But, um, but I don't have time to go into all that. I just want to talk a little bit. Here I'm standing in the ruins of Nebuchadnezzar. I'm looking at that artificial hill that you see in the background there. That's, uh, and then the palace that's built on top of it, which is vacant now, that's the palace of Saddam Hussein. Okay? Saddam Hussein very much believed that he was the next Nebuchadnezzar, and so he built himself a palace overlooking the ruins of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's palace. Now, what I'm thinking is, i got to get on that roof up there because that's the best vantage point, right, to take a picture down on these ruins. So I go over there. Of course, it's vacant, and there's a bunch of guys with machine guns guarding everything, but there's this thing in the Middle East called Bakshish, and uh, you give them a little bit of money, and then they open up the locked door, and inside the palace I go. Here I am standing in the bedroom, the former bedroom of Saddam Hussein. And you can see the uh, Euphrates River going by there outside of his window. And um, this, is, this is the Euphrates uh, River from his uh, vantage point, former vantage point. You see some of the ruins of uh, Babylon there in the background. And then I got up onto his uh, roof. And that's looking down from his roof on the palace of Nebuchadnezzar II, the Nebuchadnezzar you're reading about in the Bible. Okay, now I've been waiting for years and years and years to make it to uh, the ruins of Babylon. Get there. There's the, see all these. There's the Ishtar Gate here. There's the processional way, the main street going through here. There's all these magnificent things. You see those kind of nondescript buildings off to the left of the big buildings there. They're just kind of, those are storage rooms. So I'm with my Iraqi friend, and the first place I go in the ruins is I go to this nondescript storage room, and I got the excavation report from when it was excavated in 1903 by a German excavator named Robert Koldewe. I got that, so I'm finding the front of this uh, storage building, and there's this... uh, there's this new staircase coming down there, but it was built over where there was an ancient staircase going down. And then in that area that you just see to the right of that staircase, this is the place I'm fascinated with. This is the first place I go. And my Iraqi friend Omar is like, Joel, what, what the heck are you doing? <laughs> There's a whole palace in Nebuchadnezzar over here. There's the famous Ishtar Gate. There's the, one of the biggest temples in the world, the Temple of Marduk. There's the, the foundation to the Tower of Babel. What? What what are you doing here? (laughs) What is this? I'm like Omar, man. What was found here in 1903 is amazing. Uh, When Caldevay was excavating, he found a cache of almost 300 uh, clay tablets with cuneiform writing on them, and uh, you know all they are is receipts. They're receipts from the palace. Okay, well we gave this much uh, barley to this person, and we gave this much oil to that person. And uh, it's just a record of who was receiving um, rations. That's why they're called the ration tablets, rations from the palace. And on two of these tablets mentioned several times is the name of an individual and his title. I'll give you just one of the translations of just one of these mentions. We get a guy named Ya'kin, 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 and then we get his title, King of Judah, if Yakin is from the king of Judah, is the king of Judah, what house is he from? He's from the house of David, right? And then he gets oil. They are giving him oil. And he's not only getting it, but look at this to the sons of the king of Judah. Here we have a guy, Yakin, from the house of David and his sons. Receiving oil in Babylon, this place, logically speaking, is like the resurrection of the dead of the house of David. Now, who the heck is this Yakin? Well, we've got to go to the Bible and find him. It's not Zedekiah. It can't be Zedekiah, right? Because Zedekiah doesn't have any sons. Who is he? Jehoi. Now, Jehoiachin comes into English in uh, Hebrew, Yehoiachin. Yehoiachin, Yakin. It's like calling somebody Joe instead of Joseph. It's just a condensed version of the name, Yehoiachin. Okay, now we're into English. We say usually Jehoiachin. Okay, so what I'm going to read now happened before, it's a siege that happened before what happened to Zedekiah and his sons. This is previous to that. Uh, Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. At that time, the officers of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, advanced in Jerusalem and laid siege to it. Jehoiakim, or Jehoiakim, king of Judah, there he is in the Bible, there he is on this tablet, found independent of the Bible, dug up from the ground in Babylon, Surrender to him. Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiakim captive to Babylon. He made Matania, Jehoiakim's uncle, king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. Do you see the fake <laughs> there? Uh, who's the legitimate king of Judah? Uh, is it Zedekiah who the enemy put and made king? Or is it the one who had inherited his kingship uh, who is now in Babylon? How does the house of David survive the conquest of, uh, of the Babylonians? This is how. He's taken captive there. He's left there. This is why the whole of First and Second Kings, which together were one book, right? It ends with uh, these verses. These are the last verses in 2 Kings. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the year Aul Marduk became king of Babylon, he released Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison, So Jehoiakim put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his lives ate regularly at the king's table. Day by day, the king gave Jehoiakim a regular allowance as long as he lived. End of the book of Kings. What are the Jews doing when they read that? They're filled with hope. The house of David is still alive. The promises of God are still alive. The Messiah is still coming from the house of David. Okay, now, that's our uh, fourth example. Our fifth example is uh, what's called an ossuary. Um, An ossuary is a stone bone box, and um, the deceased Jews buried people in these stone bone boxes in the first century B.C. and first century A.D. This is the time of Jesus. And uh, and so one of these was found. um, There's thousands and thousands of these found in Jerusalem alone. But one in particular interesting one was found by an Israeli archaeologist named Amos Kloner in 1970. And uh, the way I found out about it is Amos Kloner told me about it. I was fascinated with the House of David and he was like, oh, I found this really interesting ossuary back in the 70s. You should go check it out. And so I go to uh, the storage bay (laughs) Where, you know, there's thousands and thousands of tombs found around Jerusalem alone with ossuaries in them, and tens and tens of thousands of ossuaries. And so imagine going to a Walmart, right in Israel, and all, all the rows are just filled with ossuaries. and I'm looking for one ossuary. Fortunately, I have, um, I have a catalog. And so it's number 45 in a particular section in this area, and it's an ossuary with House of David inscription in Hebrew and Aramaic from the first century BC, first century CE, that's AD. This is when Jesus lived, Jesus lived in the first century AD. Okay, so I'm going and I'm looking, here is a picture of it to the right there in the catalog, and I'm looking and I'm looking, there it is, and there I found it. So there it is in the catalog, there it is, once I found it, I pulled it out, On the side of it, inside, they found the bones of a 25-year-old man buried in there. On the outside of it, his name is scratched in there. His name is Shalom, which comes from shalom, you know, peace. And so his name is Shalom, this man that's buried inside of this ossuary. And then uh, you see this important um, inscription here to the left, which is up on the rim. Again, there it is. There, there it is on the edge of the rim and this inscription says from the house of David Shalom from the house of David this is independent archaeological evidence that Jews at the time of Jesus are still identifying themselves from being from the family of David okay so if you just take these five examples There is a ton more. I just took five examples. These five examples alone date all the way from the time of King David all the way to the time of King Jesus, the son of David. All the way from the time of King David all the way to the time of the Messiah. Okay. Now this guy, Shalom, from the house of David is a son of David. Jesus, however, is the son of David, the Messiah. And we know that from uh, Luke chapter 1, for example, when Gabriel is uh, talking to Mary, but the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give, listen to this, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. See, that is the fulfillment right there. Fulfillment of what was promised to David uh, in his palace that his house would never end because coming from his house coming from his own flesh and blood coming from his family coming from his lineage will come the Messiah who will inherit his throne and rule over his kingdom forever and ever and ever okay so what does that have to do with us Um, well the same thing that uh, based on what what he told David is a covenant. This is called the Davidic covenant, right? And our salvation is also a covenant. In fact, it's connected because we serve the king who is the son of David, who rules from David's throne forever. Okay, but uh, just as he promised David that his house was not going to be destroyed like all these other houses, but was going to last forever, he makes the same promise to us. Think just for example of of God's covenant with us of salvation. Think just of the the well-known verse, John 3.16, as our example, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever would believe in him will not perish, but have eternal life. What does that mean? It means just like God promised David, your house will never end. God is promising us, through His Son, that our relationship with Him, our life in Him, will never end. It will last forever. How does that work? Well, it works the same way that it was worked for David, right? How was it fulfilled with David? The Messiah. How does it work for us? God's Son, the Son of God and the Son of David, the Messiah, seals it for us, makes it Seals the covenant that he makes with us by his blood. That's like when he said to David, I I promise you this by my holiness. God's promise to us of salvation is so powerful that he came down out of heaven. And let's let Sennacherib show us what salvation looks like, shall we? This is what Sennacherib carved on the side of his palace. Three Judeans stripped naked, impaled alive on poles to decorate the outside of the city. That's our salvation. The one in the middle isn't just the son of David. He is the son of David. Think about that. What Sennacherib wanted to do to Hezekiah, he didn't get to do. No king from the lineage of David, no king from the house of David was ever humiliated in such a way until over 700 years after Hezekiah, when Jesus came and gave himself over to be placed alive in agony at the top of a pole, to shed his blood, to give us an eternal covenant of salvation, that we would have our sins forgiven And that we would be in his kingdom that's going to last forever under his kingship that is going to last forever and never end. With one criminal crucified to his left and one to his right. Um, Here's the point. We have total, full assurance of salvation. And that archaeological evidence that we went through speaks to it. Because God never, ever, ever, under any circumstance, ever, broke his promise Amen. to David. And he will never, ever, ever, ever break his promise to us. Amen? Amen. 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 Pray. Yeah, Lord, we do pray. We, we just stand in awe of you. We stand in awe of you, Lord. Uh, you are so awesome. You are so good to us, um, Lord. I love it that we we uh, confessed our sin individually and corporately. Lord, we thank you that we thank you that the house of David did not survive the ravages of history because of its faithfulness was so unfaithful so many times. It was not their ability to keep the promise. It was your faithfulness, Lord, and your ability to keep the promise. That's what saves us, Lord, is your faithfulness and your willingness to forgive. And so we just praise you this morning. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.